This is Robert Lighton, and I'm Director of Research at Bloomberg Government and formerly was Vice President for Research at the Kauffman Foundation. Robert Lighton argues that even if you build a better incubator or innovation hub, the approaches still have dubious results. The successful ones, he says, have historically grown from scratch. I'll give you a perfect example. Let's take Walmart. Bentonville was enough in place. And then Walmart came along, and now Bentonville was hopping. And Bentonville's close to the University of Arkansas and Fayetteville. And so that's a perfect example of an area where, through serendipity, one major company made a big deal out of the area. Ditto with Austin. Austin was a sleepy place, other than the University of Texas, until Michael Dell made a big deal out of it. Now, some people say that Semitech helped it, I think which it did, but I think really Michael Dell helped put Austin on the map. And now Austin's really hot. It's a, you know, for music and other tech companies and so forth that are all spinoffs or related to either Semitech or Dell. So when the president talks about trying to remake areas that have really been hit, I mean, I know there have been some green shoots in Youngstown and so forth, but I think it's very difficult with affirmative government policy to turn something around. Um, I mean, I think if you're going to do it, the magic bullet, if, if anything, is if you can find a way to change the schools do a good job, especially in education and and in amenities. And that makes uh, college-educated people want to stay. There's a lot of economic evidence that shows that one of the best predictors of a success of any city or town is the percentage of the population that is young and that has college degrees. And if you can basically educate them or attract them so that they stay there, that's the best thing you can do. So, we asked him, when is it ever a good idea to allocate government money directly to companies? Well, I know the administration tried that in the Stimulus Act, and of course we had the celebrated failure of Solyndra. The administration, though, points out that, you know, that was the exception rather than the rule. Well, I think the big challenge that the country faces is turning around the disappointing formation rate of new companies over the last several years. You know, until the recession, there were about five or 600,000 companies formed a year, and it was pretty stable, it was non-cyclical. But then the recession hit, and we fell from roughly 600,000 to 400,000 starts a year. And we've come back a little bit since then. I think we're in the 420, 430 range. But we're nowhere near the pre-recession peak. And so the challenge of the country, really, to get back on track and get its mojo back, is to get a lot more new startups, especially in the tech area. And we're a long way from that. And by the way, when I say tech, I don't mean just mobile apps. The economy cannot survive on, you know, multiple WhatsApps. There just aren't enough people working for WhatsApps to really get the economy going. And it made those people rich, but we need lots of companies that are not WhatsApps, but that are in the $100 million, a $1 billion range that are doing new cool things. And the question is, what can the government do? And I'll tell you, I think the single most important thing is it can facilitate crowdfunding. And the SEC has proposed new rules uh, for crowdfunding under the JOBS Act, which I think are on the onerous side. And I think if you talk to entrepreneurs, they're on the onerous side. And I would hope that in doing their final rules that the SEC would give a little more credit to the marketplace, worry a little less about fraud, and just take some risk. Because the country is not going to get out of its rut unless we collectively take risk, and we've got to allow funders to be able to take risk. If we have a minor degree of fraud, I think it's worth the price for all the legitimate money that's going to flow to a lot of companies, recognizing most of them will be failures, but that's the way things are. But we need the risk-taking in order to get the successes. I would rather try to keep the government to supporting basic R&D and handing it out to universities, not to commercial enterprises, because that's the 
the, the commercial end is really where the private sector ought to be financing. Robert Lighton. He's the director of research at Bloomberg Government. Supporting basic research and development is what the government does with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. A good test case to see how direct funding by the government can spur innovation that will, in turn, inspire entrepreneurial business. President Eisenhower set up the agency to invest in new military technologies. Over the decades, it's created groundbreaking inventions, many of which have been adapted for civilian use. Computer networking, GPS, also Siri. Jennifer Strong reports. At a conference in Washington, D.C., economists, professors, and policymakers are discussing a hot topic, the role of government in research and innovation. The keynote speaker is economist Mariana Mazzucato. She's the author of the best-selling book, The Entrepreneurial State. She believes public money is critical. She says venture capitalists, or VC, have lower risk tolerance and shorter attention spans. VC today is not putting money into the hard stuff. VC is becoming increasingly short-termist. It wants its returns in three years. That's maybe fine for some gadgets, but innovation in clean technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology requires 15 to 20 years. Defense research agency DARPA funds these kinds of difficult and risky projects. To call a project risky means that many will fail for each one that succeeds. Dr. Arthi Prabhakar is DARPA's director. DARPA was created to have the ability to reach for enormous impact. We're completely willing to take risk when we see the potential for a big impact. Uh, And so we actively seek out researchers, sometimes in universities, sometimes in companies, other labs. To be clear here, creating entrepreneurs has nothing to do with DARPA's mission. The innovations they fund go far beyond military use, but turning a discovery into a consumer product that creates jobs, well, that's up to the scientist and private capital. Arthi Prabhakar. A lot of the early pieces of the information revolution, material science even before that, uh, work in electronics. Most iconically, of course, was uh, this little project from the late 60s that was the ARPANET, which became the Internet. Those are great examples of technologies that have transformed national security, but have also changed how we live and work. Marianne Mazzucato says Google's algorithm was created with government research dollars, and she says it was DARPA that created much of what makes an iPhone an iPhone. You can surf the web with the internet. You can know where you are through GPS. You can use it in a very user-friendly way with um, touchscreen display. You can even talk into it with a Siri. Well, all of those four technologies were funded by government. But Philip Carter says the government's role in technology products is overstated. He's a senior fellow at the defense think tank, CNAS. I think the case study of Siri puts the cart before the horse. It's true that Siri is a component of the iPhone. It's not necessarily true that the private sector wouldn't have developed Siri or something better for the iPhone without DARPA funding. Carter also thinks DARPA is not as important as it once was to public research outside of the military. In the big picture, DARPA is a small player in the world of business and the world of innovation. DARPA provides some seed capital, but it's really dwarfed by what the private sector provides. But that public seed capital is necessary, says MIT professor Yoel Fink. He developed a new generation of optical fibers with DARPA funding. 
Today, those fibers are the basis of a company that produces one of the world's most precise surgical scalpels. Fink says DARPA funds proved those fibers were possible. But in order to get it out into the marketplace, one needed a much larger amount of capital. But since the idea or the technology was de-risked from a standpoint of is it possible at all, then the private sector was prepared to step in and to fund it. Fink directs MIT's research lab of electronics called the RLE. It covers things like atomic physics and nanoscale science. DARPA money has gone to a variety of projects here, including work with ultra-cold atoms, which won a Nobel Prize. Fink says DARPA allows for a more open scientific process, which he says is important in high-risk research. Most funding partners require benchmarks for reaching goals. The process of scientific research is a process of discovery. And so if you take, for example, uh, Columbus, he had a very specific mission, and the mission was find a shortcut to India. Now, had the king of uh, Spain at the time held him accountable to achieving his goal, he basically would have stopped funding because, hey, he didn't find the shortcut to India. DARPA's annual budget hovers around $3 billion. Most of that goes to funding research projects. Japan is in the process of starting its own version of DARPA, in an effort to spur research and innovation there. In Washington, I'm Jennifer Strong for America Abroad. You're listening to How Governments Can Help or Harm Entrepreneurs on America Abroad. Coming up, why Singapore's government is the best in the world when it comes to supporting innovative business. Let us know your thoughts about the program. You can tweet us at America underscore abroad.